we have a, a guest speaker tonight. I said in the meeting before our worship service that one of the happy consequences of my accident and inability to be in the pulpit is that we get to hear from our brother, Pastor Stu Johnson. I imagine he's well known uh, to most of you, one of the pastors at Grace Reformed Baptist Church. He's been foundational in helping us think through the formation of this church plant and some of the strategy and process that has gone into place. And uh, he's been a faithful pastor and shepherd to uh, many of us who are here tonight, we look forward to hearing him preach. As Pastor Stu, would you please come and minister the word? I'd like to ask you to turn with me, please, in the copy of the Bible to the book of Acts, chapter 1. The opening chapter of the book of Acts. And as you're turning there, um, let me say that it's... Uh, it's a real privilege to be able to be uh, in your midst tonight. And let me say, as one of the pastors and one of the members of uh, Grace Reformed over in Mebane, that we, we regard uh, the work that is developing and blossoming here as one of the most meaningful things that the Lord has our church involved in in these days. And we're very thankful to be able to pray for you and to be able to have uh, something of an organic connection to you that comes to expression in something just like this of my being able to be with you um, for this occasion. If you're visiting here for the first time and haven't had the opportunity uh, to hear Alex preach, let me urge you to come back uh, because his preaching will be central under God to the work that is developing here. And so I want to uh, encourage you very much in that way. The book of Acts begins on this note. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, for John, that is John the Baptist, truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. I especially want to draw your attention to that last verse, verse 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The simple fact that these are the last words that Jesus spoke to his apostles before he bodily ascended back into the heavens underscores their crucial significance 
These were the words that he literally wanted to leave them with. These were the things that he most wanted to impress upon their minds and upon their hearts. These were the marching orders that he gave to the apostles, now 11 in number, because one, Judas Iscariot, had proven to be a traitor. And to these men, he promises power and he directs them to a mission that would take the rest of their lives, a mission where they would take the message of himself to their local city of Jerusalem, uh, to their local region, and even to the outermost ends of the earth. I'd like for us to think about what's oftentimes called the Great Commission, uh, commission uh, around seven questions and their answers. And the first question is this. To whom did Christ give these marching orders? To whom? And you can answer that along two lines. In the first place, primarily, immediately, Christ gave these orders to his apostles. Some three years earlier, uh, Jesus had handpicked these men in order to be with him in a special way, to actually live with him and to follow him as he went around Galilee and then in southern Judea there in the environs of Jerusalem. He handpicked these men to actually travel with him, to live with him, to eat with him, and to engage in constant private conversations with him, to be a first-hand witness to his teaching, to his miracles. He had done this, according to Mark 3.14, he had chosen them to be with him so that he might one day send them out to preach. They were a select band. They were a unique company of men. He trained these men in the world's finest seminary of all time. And he trained them with a goal in mind that they would be the foundation stones of the church. That the church would rest upon their inspired teaching. So he had sent them out earlier on smaller missions. Now he is sending the 12 out on, or rather the 11, on the great mission. They were equipped with unique apostolic Authority, the signs of an apostle would accompany their ministry. But while these men, the apostles, were the immediate and were the primary recipients of the commission, the mission was too large to be restricted to just those 11. Christ was commissioning also in these words the entire church. Okay, there's a broader application. Christ was not just speaking to 11 men. He was speaking to us. He was speaking to the church that was about to be founded uh, based on the teaching of the apostles and the prophets. The apostles alone could not take the gospel to the end of the earth. The scope of the task was too large for a small group of men to accomplish in one lifetime. Thousands of disciples and multiple generations would be required to take the good news of Jesus to the end of of the earth, according to Matthew's account of the commission, and that's perhaps the best known commission passage in the four gospels and book of Acts. You'll remember that Jesus promised the apostles there at the end of Matthew 28, lo, I am with you always, what do he say? Even to the end of the age. Well, the apostles died and went to heaven centuries ago, two millennia ago. The end of the age has not yet come, but the promise of Christ still stands. 
Lo, I am with you. The apostles are gone. They're in heaven now. They are glorying in the immediate presence of the glorified Lamb of God. Uh, The work is no longer for them to do. The work is for people like me and you to do. Uh, We're living now. The end of the age has not come. Christ has promised to be with us. It's important to understand that not everyone in the church has the same amount of responsibility with respect to the work of evangelism. That's something that could be developed over a sermon or over a series of sermons. Uh, One of the missionary efforts here stateside that I personally am most excited about right now is a work being engaged in by some people that some of you know, Bob and Kathy Self. Uh, After years, after decades of being involved in pastoral ministry, uh, Pastor Self stepped aside from pastoral ministry and he and his wife Kathy in their uh, maybe mid-60s moved to the inner city of Atlanta in order to engage in a full-time evangelistic slash benevolent work among some of the most needy people in the South's largest city. They're giving themselves with complete dedication to reaching the loss in, uh, in an area of, of acute need in multifaceted ways. Well, it, it's thrilling that he's doing the work, but he's at a different stage of life now than he was when he was a full-time pastor and busy preparing sermons every week and doing a lot of counseling among the people of God every week and responsible for a lot of administration, managing the house of God every week. There was a time in Bob and Kathy's lives when they were raising children and they spent hours and a tremendous amount of energy investing themselves in the good, godly work of shepherding children. But that time's passed now. Their children are raised. Uh, They once had a home that was very nice. It demanded some effort to keep up the yard and the horticulture. That's behind them now. They live in a very simple dwelling place. The part of Atlanta they live in, you don't worry too much about how green the grass is. Uh, It's just not an issue. So there are all kinds of things that they can now put aside and they can just focus on giving themselves to the work of evangelism, having people in their home, leaving their home and going out into the community to meet people, to engage people, to befriend people, to love people, to speak to people about the only hope under heaven as to how someone can have peace with God and go to heaven when they die. I'm saying all that to say we should recognize that different people are at different places in their stewardship of life. We, we have differing gifts, certainly. Some people uh, amaze us with how articulate they are in being able to speak the gospel to others. Some people impress us as how engaging they are with others. Uh, people have different gifts. People have different opportunities. People are different places in terms of the responsibilities that God has put upon their plate. So I say all that just to say that we don't share equally in the responsibility in terms of what our part looks like. But having said that, we all have a piece in the responsibility to take this mission forward. And we should all feel something of that responsibility, that we have some part in this mission. That was the last thing Jesus spoke to us about before he ascended back to glory. To whom did Christ give these marching orders First and foremost to the apostles, but secondly to the church. Question number two, what did Christ promise when he gave these marching orders? What did Christ promise when he gave these marching orders? His promise was you shall receive power. 
Christ conveyed that there would be a new dimension of supernatural influence that would come upon his people when the Holy Spirit came. The one that made the world of nothing, the one who spoke the stars into existence and knows their location and their name, the one that caused light to shine into darkness, the one that raised the dead, was going to soon descend upon the apostles and upon the church. He would be the supreme gift of the risen Christ to his people. He would not leave his people as orphans. It would be better for him to go away because he would send them the paraclete. He would send them the Holy Spirit. And here in this passage, what he especially draws our attention to as the effect, as the leading benefit of the coming of the Holy Spirit is power. Authority has to do with the right to lead, the right to rule. There are people who have authority, but they have little or no power. Their influence is nil. There are other people who don't have the authority, perhaps, to lead in a given situation, but they've got influence. Uh, Christ was promising that with the coming of the Holy Spirit, these people who were entrusted with the right to take the gospel out would likewise be given power. They would be given ability from on high. Let's think about four ways in which this promise of power comes to expression with respect to the witness. We're still on question two, but here are uh, four subpoints. The Spirit powerfully opens doors for the gospel. One of the ways that the coming of the Spirit uh, manifests itself in power is that opportunities are created in which we can speak the gospel and live the gospel before others. In the book of Acts, this would be illustrated in a spectacular fashion. In Acts chapter 2, the Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost, and because there were people from every nation under earth, according to Acts 2, gathered there for the earlier Passover festival, many had stayed for the Pentecost festival. So you already have Jews and proselyte uh, Gentiles who were gathered in Jerusalem. And because of the extraordinary phenomena that attended the coming down of the Holy Spirit, a huge crowd gathers and they ask the apostles the, the question, what's going on? And, and Peter has the opportunity without no advertising, no planning, no door-to-door work, Peter has the opportunity just to open his mouth and respond to an extraordinary providential opportunity that the Spirit created. And that was one of the ways that the power of the Spirit was evident was he had the opportunity to preach to thousands. We too will find God answering our prayers, uh, sometimes giving us opportunities that are unplanned and unexpected, uh, other times giving us opportunities that may result from a very deliberate, a very intentional strategy that we have thought through prayerfully, we have talked about, and then we've worked at implementing. Uh, some of our best opportunities we should expect will come about as a result of being very intentional. What can we do to bring the gospel to a needy family member, to a co-worker, to a neighbor, to a family that I've become connected with through youth soccer, uh, out at the local nursing home, maybe at the local jail. Uh, we should expect that ordinarily our best opportunities will come in connection with our planning, praying, and disciplining ourselves 
to be involved in the work that we understand God has given us to do. But sometimes things will come up that we had nothing to do with, so to speak. God just puts it in our lap. I have a regular ministry at a nursing home. I'm a part-time chaplain uh, at a local nursing home. And I have very predictable opportunities every week to preach to people and to converse uh, one-on-one. But one of the best opportunities I've had in recent months at the beginning of the year was through something that was completely unexpected. An African-American, World War II veteran died. And, uh, and one of his daughters asked if, if I would come and be involved with a funeral. It was a great opportunity to go into a cultural setting where I was very different from most people there. And it was a very different kind of um, service than what I'm accustomed to. But it was an opportunity to be able to speak in Christ's name uh, in a setting where I was convinced from the other things that were said at the service that it was a, a good thing for me to be able to participate and to be able to say some things about Christ and for Christ. And that was just an opportunity that I didn't create, but in God's providence, it was created for me. We'll see the same thing because the Spirit has been given in power. And one of the ways that His power manifests itself is that doors are opened. A second way that the Spirit's power manifests itself is that the Spirit powerfully helps His people to say things that need to be said. One of the ways that we experience the Spirit's power is in giving us help in communicating things that need to be said. Many of God's people feel a keen sense of inadequacy in terms of their ability to witness to others. In fact, even as I anticipated speaking from this passage tonight, I was recalling to myself that evangelism just as a word is one of those things that you just announce the term and immediately you can promote guilt feelings and discouragement and kind of a sagging sense of, oh no, I do so poorly at that. And it is an area where many dear Christians feel a tremendous sense of awkwardness, of inadequacy. And one of the things that we need to remind ourselves, Jesus said in another context that Don't fear not being able to speak. I will will give you the words to say. And that was in the context of persecution. And there being times where you uh, Christians would be arrested and would be interrogated. And Jesus assured them, "I, I I will give you words to say. You need not be intimidated by the thought that you'll just be so paralyzed that you won't be able to come out with anything. Well, there's an application of that same principle to evangelism. Love loosens our tongues, doesn't it? You know, on some level, on some level, it is uh, what, what enables us if we're parents to do things that are hard with our children. Things that everything within us wants to ev- avoid doing. We want to look the other way, pretend we didn't see that, that didn't happen, we'll just keep flowing along. But what, what moves us to engage in situations that, that are difficult? Love moves us. A sense of responsibility moves us. And we do find the Spirit bringing to mind things that, that we have learned, and uh, uh, whether it's in the form of our writing a letter to a, a sibling that we're concerned about, or perhaps writing an aunt or an uncle, or perhaps uh, seeking to uh, bring up the subject of spiritual things with a colleague over lunch, uh, whatever the setting may be. Now, one of the ways that the Spirit shows His power to His people is in helping us to articulate truth. Thirdly, and related, 
The Spirit powerfully imparts boldness to Christ's witnesses. This is yet another way in which the promise of power comes to expression. And this is an outstanding feature in the book of Acts. Uh, This is one of the most conspicuous ways that the coming of the Spirit was on display. I mean, you remember that it was only about six weeks earlier that Peter had been so intimidated and so afraid that even when a girl had suggested that he had some association with Jesus, Peter had, had denied knowing anything about Jesus. He had nothing to do with Jesus. He was so scared and Fear was what was controlling him. But with the coming of the Holy Spirit, you see a whole new dimension of boldness. And that, again, in an incredible way, was on display at the day of Pentecost. We're speaking to thousands without having had even five minutes to prepare a message. He stands up and the Spirit was bringing things to his mind. Old Testament scriptures, words of application. And there was such a boldness as he graciously confronted people with the truth of what they had done to their own Messiah. Witness is not just for those who are natively bold. Uh, Witness is not just for those who are natively extroverted. As I said before, uh, the, the shape that our personal witness takes is going to vary from person to person and from season to season. But we should expect, we have warrant from the Bible to expect, That God, through His Spirit, will give us power, emboldening us to say things that in our own selves we never would have said. For me, natively, my native makeup is to always avoid the possibility of conflict and tension. I, I don't like to go places where it may cause tension, where it may cause difficulty. But... Part of the Spirit's work is that He enables us to step over that and to have a courage that is rooted in a love for God and in a love for others. Well, finally, the Spirit's power is manifested in making the gospel effectual. Uh, One of the the ways that the Spirit's power shows itself is that we see that the gospel, it works It it does change lives. Again, this was on display in an extraordinary way. On the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit first came, there were literally thousands that were saved uh, in response to Peter's bold preaching of the gospel. We recognize that that's not ordinary, that's not normal. Even by the last quarter of the book of Acts, things have changed. Paul's a prisoner. God's still giving him opportunities to bear witness, and he speaks to Felix, he speaks to Festus, he has various opportunities. As far as we know, none of those people are saved. You know, we're not seeing spectacular results all the time from our witness. But we will see people saved uh, because the gospel has a power to it, and that power reflects the presence of the Holy Spirit and His blessing, the Word spoken. Well, we've considered two questions. To whom did Christ assign these marching orders? And what did Christ promise to the mission team? More quickly now, what did Christ commission his team to do? What did Christ commission his team to do? He said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, 
and you shall be witnesses to me. When you look through the gospel accounts of the Great Commission passage at the end of Matthew, end of Mark, end of Luke, end of John, uh, you can fill out uh, more of what Jesus talked about in those last moments before he ascended bodily back to heaven. But here in Acts, you have a very terse statement that wonderfully summarizes the message of the entire Bible. All roads in this book lead to Jesus Christ. There are many things that need to be taught in order to understand the significance of Christ. You need to understand things about creation. You need to understand the fall. You need to understand things about the holiness of God and His justice. You need to understand the wrath of God because the cross of Jesus will make no sense if you don't comprehend something about the reality that the God who is is a God who is angry every day with the wicked. That's part of the Bible's message, and it's a significant way of understanding Jesus because at the cross, Jesus would pacify the wrath of God through taking the wrath of God upon himself. He was forsaken that people like me and you could be forgiven. He bore the wrath of God that we might be released from it and that we might be reconciled to God. So many significant sub-themes, but the thing of the Bible is Jesus. And I love the way Jesus summarizes it here when he says, this is your basic work, witness to me. Thought it was interesting back home. Some of you were in Mebane this morning for the worship. And Pastor Hendricks made the same point in his preaching. That we need to talk about Jesus. Don't lose Jesus in your witnessing. Keep looking for ways to bringing it back to Jesus. Because he's the main thing. There are times where we need to speak. Especially to maybe a family member. And our witness may take on. A significant measure of reproof. There are times where our witness may take on a significant measure of admonition. But even then, we should always be prayerfully looking for ways to take it to Christ. We are witnesses to Him. One of the most wonderful things about true Christianity, one of the most wonderful things about the Bible, is that it is foundationally good news. Isn't that a wonderful thing about being a Christian? There is a lot of bad news in there. It's it's true, but it's bad. Because there's a lot bad about me and you, and there's certainly a lot bad about the world in which we live. Plenty of testimonies to evil. But it's beyond precious that the Bible always ends with good news. Jesus came to rescue. Jesus came to forgive. Jesus came to restore. A new age is coming. And for those that trust in Jesus, there will be no more evil in them, nor will there be any more evil around them. Praise God. We have the privilege of conveying that message to others. We don't do so tritely. We don't slap on a plastic grin and say, smile, God loves you. That's not always the right thing to say in a given situation. But we always have hope to point people to. Because the message is of a Savior. 
a rescuer. Jesus said, be witnesses to me. Talk about my deity. Talk about my humanity. Talk about my righteousness. Talk about my cross. Talk about my resurrection. You go through the book of Acts and you cannot escape the impression that the apostles were overwhelmed by the truth that Jesus was alive. He's living. We don't see him anymore. We can't touch him anymore. We can no longer eat fish on the beach with him. But he's alive. That transformed their witness. The, The persuasion of the living Savior. Talk about Jesus. Question number four. Who was to hear the message about Jesus? Who was to hear the message about Jesus? You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. In short, the whole world needs to hear. Every nation, every tribe, every tongue. The apostles were to begin in their own area. Their first responsibility was to witness right there in Jerusalem. But they were not to be content to remain in Jerusalem. They were to reach out to the surrounding region of Judea. They were then to take the message into Samaria. If you're familiar with Bible times, and in particular New Testament times, you know that there was a bad history between the Jews and the Samaritans. Uh, They were despised half-breeds. They were religious compromisers from way back. It was a tremendous ethical divide that expressed itself in very practical ways in the culture of that day. Jews did not go to McDonald's with Samaritans. They, They did not have interaction together. They didn't eat together. They didn't mix. And Jesus, in making that reference to be witnesses to me in Samaria, he he was saying, men, you're going to have to step outside your box. You're going to have to do some things that are going to be uncomfortable for you. You're going to have to work at overcoming some barriers that have been part of your DNA your entire lifetime. There are certain things that you don't even think about. You just do because it's all you've ever known culturally, and you're going to have to go to war against some of those things because there are people that you need to reach, and you need to learn to be a bridge builder. You need to learn how to go into a setting where natively uh, you have discomfort. As I said before, how this works out practically for you and for me, it's going to vary depending on our gifts and our graces and our place. But we all should feel some weight of responsibility to how can we have a share in taking the gospel, not just to our own, but to even Samaritans and beyond that to the outermost part of the world. One of the challenges that you may well find uh, in your ongoing life together and mission together is is to find a balance between there being a time for uh, what some have said, have described as circling the wagons and, and what some have described as charging the hill. And uh, it's kind of, it's kind of a, a basic twofold response to how you view those out there 
those whose values are different from yours, those whose belief system is different from, you, from yours, those whose perspectives and behaviors are such that you realize that we could be hurt by them. Uh, their, their influence on us or our children could be detrimental. And there is a strong, understandable instinct to circle the wagons and keep those kind of influences at a far distance. I want to be insulated from you because, in part, I'm scared of you. I'm scared of of how you might come into my family. Maybe you'll steal my children from me. Uh, Maybe my, 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 my children will be taken away. Uh, in terms of their values, because of your influence. There is a place for circling the wagons. But in my understanding of the New Testament, uh, we must beware of an undue mindset of circle the wagons because there needs to be something of a, we've got to leave the safety of home. We've got to go out in order to reach people that will not be reached if we wait for them to kind of become sanitized somewhat and go through the car wash a few times morally and then finally they get to a certain place where, okay, now we can safely interact with them and not risk uh, being polluted or being overwhelmed. Uh, I'm speaking of a very real thing. I mean, I'm, I've been a parent. Uh, I, I sympathize with the concern about you do have to be careful about what you do expose your children to. Especially when you have reason to think that they're unregenerate. Please don't hear me to be saying that you should just toss concerns to the wind and just go get them wherever they are. We have to prayerfully think about about how to work out our relationship to a perishing world. I think the main thing that I would want to convey to you is be on the lookout against what could well be an inordinate sense of Protect, protect, protect. And you end up living a life where you don't really know non-Christians and you're not impacting non-Christians. There's just too much of a space between where you live and where they live. And yes, it's uncomfortable to build a road to them. And I've... I've been through my youthful idealism stage and going to the inner city youth clubs and working hard at building relationships and being a coach and, and thinking that the whole community is going to be revolutionized because Stu Johnston appeared in all of his love and grace and with the message of Jesus. I did, I did a major in college, recreation and park administration, thinking that th- this would be a means, recreation, where I can reach young people for Jesus. I was sincere. But I was misguided in certain ways. And I began to get out into the real world and I began to get slapped across the face with various realities of how difficult it is to engage certain segments of our population. You want to help them, but how do you help them? It's, these things are not easy. But again, I just, I just set before you uh, the challenge of circle the wagons. There's a time to do that. But y'all, there's a time to charge the hill with grace. Not not because you're out to kill anybody, but because you're out to win them. You go out with gospel weapons. And just like in a real war, you put yourself at some risk. You love people and you are going to be hurt. I assure you of that. 
And no amount of circling the wagons, y'all, is going to save you from that. There'll be enough heartache within the circle of the wagons. Um, But loving people uh, necessarily involves putting ourselves at risk. And we are not going to reach the lost people if we don't make some effort to meet them where they are. And to love on them as they are with the prayer that God would open up these doors of opportunity through which he alone can reach their hearts. Who was to hear the message about Jesus? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the end of the earth. Question number five. How did the disciples first begin to carry out the mission? How did the disciples first begin to carry out the mission? Well, I've made reference to this throughout the message. It began on an extraordinary note. There will not be another day of Pentecost. I mean, Jesus came once, the Holy Spirit came once. This was a humongous, redemptive, historical event. And it's not surprising that it would be accompanied by incredible phenomena. And it was. Now, there were things you could see, there were things that you could hear. What drew that huge crowd gathered from every nation, what drew them to the apostles was they heard what? They heard these men speaking of the things of God in their own native language. You had in a moment a miracle of speech. All of a sudden you had 10, 15, 20, 25 different languages being spoken. And people knew enough to, to know that guy's never spoken Ethiopian before. Where did that come from? And... And it was a phenomena that, that understandably caused them to marvel. It drew them together. They asked, what is going on? Is this drunkenness? Peter says, no, it's not drunkenness. I'll tell you what's going on. He preaches. 3,000 are converted in that one message. They're baptized. They're added to the church. And God, it seems, gave a tremendous jump start to the mission on that one day. Acts 2 tells us explicitly... In verse 5, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, from every nation under heaven. And we infer that many of those people, like the Ethiopian eunuch described in Acts chapter 8, would go back to their native countries, and they went back as the first missionaries. They had been saved, and they took the message of their rescue back home with them. So there was this tremendous beginning, those opening chapters of Acts Uh, while there's danger, uh, are so thrilling. What what God did as literally hundreds, thousands were being drawn. Can you imagine the nursery in a place like that? Can you imagine the difficulties, even if you have your name tags, of remembering names? Now, you know, you come here one day, the next day, 3,000 more are in. Just all kinds of practical challenges would have arisen. And indeed, Acts tells us about some of the challenges that arose But what a thrilling time it would have been to live, to see the power of the gospel unleashed in that way as the mission began. For us, we generally begin where God has placed us. God has placed us in families. God has placed us in a a given locale. We live on a certain street. Uh, We work at a certain place. The God who sovereignly ordains whatsoever comes to pass 
The God who has predetermined our lives even before we were born. God has sovereignly arranged the contours of our lives. There are people that we know because we live where we live or we work where we work. Or we were born into the family we were born into. Or we, uh, our child takes piano lessons at the same place where someone else's child takes piano lessons. They're, these, are, these are natural type contours. And generally we begin where God has placed us. One of my favorite stories in the Gospels is of the Gerasene demoniac. That man who had a legion of demons. Jesus miraculously delivered him and restored him to a right mind. Everybody in the community responds by begging Jesus to go away. They're scared. The garrison demoniac now converted is the one guy who begs Jesus that he might go with him. Everyone else wants Jesus to please leave. You, you scare us. The delivered man says, oh, Jesus, let me go with you. But he's, he's the one guy. Jesus says yes to the demons. Jesus says yes to the crowd. Uh, to the delivered man, Jesus says, no, you can't go with me. I want you to go home. Go back to your family, and I want you to tell them what great things God has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And to that man's credit, that's what he did. And people were impacted. He probably couldn't have explained propitiation. He probably had never heard the word. I don't know that he could have explained the basics of the cross. But he had a story of what Jesus had done for him. He had been a wild man. And Jesus gave him self-control. He had been utterly isolated. Jesus accepted him. Jesus had, had compassion on him. He had a story to tell. And his mission was to go to where oftentimes we find it the hardest place on earth to witness our own families. Doesn't it seem that way at times? I guess just that is the hardest place on earth to witness is our own families. Question number six. What was radically new about the Great Commission? What was radically new about the Great Commission as we find it here in Acts 1.8? For the first time in the history of redemption, God's people were called to be messengers of good news to the nations. This was, this was a new thing. Now, we should understand it had long been God's purpose that the blessings of salvation would come to the whole earth. That wasn't a new truth. Uh, that truth had been revealed as far back as Genesis 12 when God, in appearing to Abram, had promised that his seed in him, all the families of the earth would be blessed. So we have that early indication that it's God's purpose that blessing would come not just to the Jewish people, but to all the nations on earth. And there are various Old Testament passages that anticipate that worldwide scope of blessing. But think of a psalm like Psalm 67, for example. Let, let the peoples, let the nations praise you, O God. Let all the nations praise you. So the Old Testament anticipated the message of God's salvation going to the ends of the earth. But throughout the Old Testament era, for centuries, God's message of saving mercy was in fact almost totally restricted to the one nation of Israel. There were some notable individual exceptions. 
But for the most part, Israel was under orders to remain separate from the nations. The idea of being scattered among the nations was to be understood as an expression of God's curse upon Israel. His judgment would scatter them out of the land of promise and force them into foreign lands like Persia, Babylon. That was God's judgment. That wasn't God's commission. For many of the most famous Old Testament figures that you and I are familiar with, a large part of the work of their lives was killing other nations. That was under God. It was righteous. It was God's sovereign determination that given the depths of their iniquity, the way in which their iniquity had in a sense matured, had come to a place where it had crossed a line, God's judgment came upon them. So when we read of Moses and we read of Joshua and we read of all the judges and we read of David, these men served God in their generation by destroying the enemies of Israel. Psalm 149, which is a psalm of praise for God's goodness to Israel, exclaims, Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand to execute vengeance on the nation. Psalm 149, verses 6 and 7. This is not the time to go into the propriety of the wrath of God expressing itself in that way against the nations. We live in a culture where there is an unusually developed willingness to put God uh, on trial and to think ourselves more than adequate to judge whether God is a good God or not. And God's pattern of destruction being ordered on certain nations in, in the Old Testament is oftentimes brought forward as exhibit A of the God of the Bible is a God that we don't want anything to do with. What a poor God is He. Look at what the Old Testament teaches. Well, uh, we beg to differ. Uh, God, God, God knows better how to be God than we know uh, what a God should be. It was an expression of His holiness. It was an expression of His justice. It was more than deserved by them, just as it is deserved by me and you. Uh, we, we don't stand today as those who are superior to them. If it was just a matter of justice, we would all be gone. And it would be entirely right. It would be entirely just for us to have been among the Amorites or the Hittites or the Egyptians that drowned in the Red Sea. But my point right now is how radically different is the New Covenant. Yes, there had been a day where, according to worship in God's sanctuary, the saints spoke of strapping on their swords. It's our privilege to go forth as messengers of peace. We have this window. The wrath of God is not over. Its greatest display is yet to come. But we have this window between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming. And we're called not to go forth with swords to kill. We're called to go forth with this sword to win, to rescue, to heal. To restore a message of forgiveness. It's a radically new day in that sense. My final question is this. You've been patient with me. What brought about this radical change in how God's people are to relate to the nations? 
And the basic answer is the coming of Jesus, the great missionary. Jesus, throughout eternity past, as God the Son, dwelt in the heavens where he was always understood, he was always revered, he was always loved, and it was always safe. He knew nothing but unbroken fellowship with God the Father and God the Spirit. He knew nothing but the unceasing adoration of angels. He knew nothing but the, un- the, the unending worship of the spirits of just men made perfect. But God the Son decided to embrace mission. And so he left the safety of heaven. And he voluntarily came into the world where he was fully open up to what was going to happen. He would not be understood. He would not be revered. He would not be loved. He would not be worshipped for the most part. He would be accused. He would be condemned. He would be whipped. He would be crucified. With his eyes fully open to that, God the Son had said, yes, I'll do it. It was according to the counsel of the triune God, and it was the Son who said, I will take on humanity. I will enter into their world. I will become one with them. And even though it will mean not just getting dirty, it will mean being brutally murdered. And beyond that, even accepting the cup of God's wrath, that right wrath that had shown itself against the Hittites and the Amorites and the Egyptians, Jesus said, I will drink that cup. I will take the wrath of God. I will be abandoned by my Father. And I'll do it for the salvation of sinners from all over the earth. That's what brought about the great change. Do you know that Jesus I assume that everyone here is religious on some level. Otherwise, you wouldn't be at church unless you're simply here because someone makes you to come. I'm going to assume that all of us are religious. And perhaps everyone here, if I were to ask you, do you believe in Jesus, you would say, yes. Intellectually, you, you do believe in a person named Jesus. But have you come to know and love this Jesus who came, most fundamentally, to bear the wrath of God in the place of rebel sinners like me and you. He came to live the life that we have not lived because we've never loved God as we should. Truth be told, we haven't loved our neighbor as we should. He lived the life of loving perfectly. But then he died as if he were the greatest sinner that had ever lived. He drank to the full the holy indignation of his father when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was not just an emotional venting. It was an expression of reality. He was forsaken. God the Son for a time. And he did that so that people like us would not have to face that wrath, could be delivered from it through believing in and following after this Jesus. And if we know this Jesus who would love us so much 
when he says, Even as the Father has sent me, so send I you. That resonates, doesn't it? That resonates. Jesus, if, if you could do that, if you did do that for someone like me, then Lord Jesus, by your grace, this is what I'll do. I'll go for you. In whatever shape that takes in terms of my stewardship of gifts, Princes and opportunities and burdens, whatever shape it takes, Lord Jesus, I'm going for you. It is no longer about me. I repudiate my own dreams. I forsake living for my own agenda. Jesus is going to be about you. My life may be mediocre by many standards. My life may have a tremendous amount of same old, same old, doing the diapers, doing the dishes, doing the laundry, doing the same old, legal work, medical work, whatever it is. But whatever I do, Jesus, I'm going for you. And that becomes a, a genuine heartbeat for every Christian. Just have your heartbeat. Life is short. And may God give us grace uh, in whatever time remains to, uh, to be missionaries. Little M. Perhaps big M for some of you. Be a church that prays for people to be saved. Be a church that encourages the culture. That you want to see some people get up and leave. And go to places where people don't have the riches that you have here. Pray for that. Talk about that. Think about that. Dream about that. There are things worth dreaming about. And there are dreams worth letting go of. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for this time in your sacred and sweet presence. How unworthy we are of a God like you. And yet you have loved us so much that you sent your only begotten Son into this cruel, unfair world. We bless you, Lord Jesus, for all that you willingly endured for our sakes, that we might not perish, but have everlasting life through faith in you. Oh God, we pray, make us imitators of Christ. We pray in his precious name. Amen. Amen.